0: Hound Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound Podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, it has been a big week here for news—royal news, sporting news, and coronavirus news—with lockdown easing again. I'll be having lunch in a pub garden one day this week, and I have never been so excited to eat a soggy sandwich with four coats on. So I hope you're also piling on the layers and able to enjoy meeting friends or some outdoor hospitality. Our guest this week on the podcast is the U.S. event rider Boyd Martin. We'll be talking about his three rides for the Land Rover Kentucky 3-day event and what it'll be like to ride behind closed doors rather than in front of the normally incredibly enthusiastic crowd.
1: The American crowds, they're the best crowds in the world. You go to England and you know, you get like a little bit of a golf clap as you go, you know, riding past the palms, and in America, it's uh, the crowds go wild.
0: I will also be joined by three of my horse and hound colleagues to reflect on Rachel Blackmore's Grand National win, the death of the Duke of Edinburgh, and the aftercare of racehorses. Finally, Vet Rick Farr from Far & Percy Equine will chat to the Royal Veterinary College's Andy Fisk Jackson about what happens when a horse is referred to a specialist equine hospital.
2: Nine times out of ten, if you own a horse, chances are that you've probably called up your local practice. They've come out and you'll have that dreaded suspicion that you might have to go off to a hospital. More from Rick
0: and Andy later. For now, pick up your whip and let's get going. I am delighted to be joined this week by US event rider, Boyd Martin, who is a two-time Olympian having ridden at London and Rio and a five-star winner. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast, Boyd. Yeah. Hello. How are you, Pippa? Thanks for having me on. I am well thank you it's great to have you joining us today and we in the UK are so jealous that you have a five-star happening in the spring over in the US this year we are all missing badminton but because we don't have badminton we are going to get super excited about Kentucky at the end of April we're going to get really involved and follow every minute from here so I was really keen to get you on the podcast to chat a bit more about that event you've got three horses entered and we will talk about all of them but I think we have to kick off with Setzeleg us a little about him. He is uh, sort of the main man in your stable at the moment. How did you first come to to get the ride on him? And what were your first impressions when you first started working with him?
1: Well, funny enough, uh, uh, you know, going back in time, I uh, when I first came to America, I did a a clinic down in Waco, Texas. And there was a a four-year-old, 15, three-hand sort of black uh, little horse with a South African rider. And I remember the horse just because uh, the sire of the horse is windfall that I knew quite well with uh, Darren Charcher uh, riding it around the Olympic Games. And so it it caught my eye. Uh, By saying that, it it didn't look that special. Uh, Years went by and uh, it it sort of got passed from rider to rider and it ended up with a a good friend of mine, Michael Pollard. And uh, Michael sort of took it up to the, I think, the two-star or three-star level and... Uh, and then he quit riding, so um, he was kind enough to recommend uh, me to be the next rider from, to the owner, Christine Turner. And uh, i got to be honest with you, when he first turned up at my stable, I, I really didn't think anything of him. He, uh, he'd grown a little bit since I saw him uh, at the clinic years and years before, but he, uh, he just looked like an oversized pony. Uh, he moved okay, he jumped okay, he, uh, he was a bit fat, he was a bit woolly. And uh, I, I didn't give him that much attention for the first couple of weeks. And uh, I, I finally got around to riding him at a show. And I took him took him to a show and then, holy moly, I mean, talk about a horse that changes at a competition. And I, I hopped on him and he felt like he was 17 hands and he was strong and he was brave and he jumped beautifully. And I was thinking, t- well, holy moly, talk about a diamond in the rough. And... Uh, Right from that moment on, I, I knew that uh, he was a special one.
0: Well, that's really interesting that you mentioned Windfall because, of course, he won the Modified Division at Kentucky in 2004, which was the year that Kentucky ran both an old-school long format with roads and tracks and steeplechase, and they tested the sort of short format, as we called it at that time, ahead of the Athens Olympics. And Windfall was the stallion who actually won that short format event. So there's a Kentucky a Kentucky link there as well in his sire
1: yeah it's interesting actually it goes to show how long breeding takes um obviously uh windfall was a a great champion american representative and uh he bred and bred and bred and it's not till now that uh there's two or three horses i think at kentucky by windfall and uh it just takes generations and uh these horses that are bred by windfall to end up in the right hands and and a bit of luck and now uh you know windfall looks like the greatest sire in america where the you know the last 10 years it, it sort of got looked over so i think the uh the tracana breeders in america are, are, are quickly trying to get a bit of the the last bit of uh, frozen semen uh from his uh from the owner tim Holcamp at the moment so it's 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 quite cool to see
0: yeah, interesting. And as you say, it is a long game because your ride, Sestelag, is 14 years old mm. now. And uh, and as you just said, he's a horse who who really comes alive at a show and you've proved that time and again with your good results with him. And he was second at Kentucky the last time the event actually ran in 2019. Just tell us a little about that week for you. And uh, is it Thomas that you call him?
1: Yeah, we call him Thomas. I don't know. the, the His name, uh, his show name, Sestelag, I think the... The breeder it's an it's a town or something in mongolia i think he was born when the breeder was in mongolia i think uh, but I, I prefer to call him thomas just because uh it's a little bit easier to roll off the tongue uh but yeah in 2019 we we uh well the year before was 2018 and we bombed out at the uh, world equestrian games at the WEG. we had a stop at that boat in the water so I was, uh, I, was, I was miserable and depressed and, and, uh, and then I came out firing in 2019 and sadly I think he was just a little bit too green for Tryon in, in the year before, but by the time we got around to 2019 he, he went like a champion, he, uh, he did a great test and zipped around the cross country and then show jumped, show jumped really really well so uh, we were just behind, um, I think it was Oliver Townend that won the class. Um, it was. Uh, it goes to show what sort of six months more training and work does and a bit more experience counts for a lot.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. It was Oliver and who won that year on Cooley Masterclass with you and Thomas just behind. And then later in 2019, the pair of you were the individual gold medalists at the Pan American Games in Lima. Boyd, we don't really understand the Pan-American Games in this country. It's not sort of part of our sporting experience, but um, it is a big deal for you over in America, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I sort of think, uh, you know, like Australia and New Zealand have the Trans-Tasman uh, competition and then I think the, you know, you guys over in Europe have the European Championships and uh, and then we have the Pan-American Games. So it's uh, America and Canada and a lot of the South American countries, Mexico and uh, all those Colombian guys and it's a uh, you know it's a uh, we went to Lima it's because uh, we failed pretty miserably in 2018 at the WEG we, we needed a, a good result to get qualified for the Olympics and so I uh, I wanted to redeem myself so it was a a three-star long but uh, when we got there it was a, a pretty decent track and uh, you know it was obviously a little bit easier than Kentucky but the time was tight and it was I don't know it was just good to you know, prove myself to the country and get the horse uh, a medal and uh, the owners loved it and uh, it was just a, a great experience and uh, yeah like you said it, it is a, a moment where you get to represent your country and i, I think if it's olympics wags even uh, nation's cup it's a, it's a big deal for me it's something i live for and uh, i was very very proud to uh to to ride thomas around there and and, and win
0: yeah and as you say that uh that that result for the for the us team clinched your spot at the uh at the tokyo olympics now happening this year the tokyo olympics 2021 And for those listeners who aren't so familiar with Boyd's story, you referenced coming over to the US earlier in the podcast and uh, representing your country there. Boyd is Australian-born, but uh, represents the US now after living there for many years. That's a long story, Boyd, and we'll get into it another time. But uh, focusing on Kentucky today, as well as Thomas, you have on cue running at Kentucky. And I was just looking at her record. She's a bit of an older horse, but it looks like she was a later starter to eventing. What's her story?
1: Oh she's great, she's a French bred horse, same sort of st- story as Thomas, it, it went from rider to rider to rider and then it sat in a paddock for two years actually and then um, the same owner as leg uh, Christine Turner, uh, actually sent it to me just to get sold and uh, I quickly uh, convinced her to hang in there because uh, the horse is a, a unbelievable mover, great cross country horse, good jumper and um, she's done well at the four star level and you know, I was hoping to run her at this event last year, so she's sort of one year on, but it's, it's given us a bit more time. Uh, she just had a cracking run at uh, Tryon last weekend in the four-star shorts, so she finished fourth there, so she's in form, um, and I think she could uh, surprise a few people, because even though she's a bit older, she's all class, and, uh, and like I said, just a, a ch- has that champion men- mentality.
0: Okay, great. We'll be looking out for her. And then the third horse making up your trio is Long Island Tea. He is a horse who started his sort of international career with Canada's Peter Barry before he joined you. What's he like?
1: Oh, he's a good horse. He's a, out of a heraldic mother, German bred horse. Uh, he's uh, owned by a syndicate of 10 people. Um, again, go, I was good mates with Peter and, and bought him off Peter at about the two-star level. And He's been going great. He's uh, a bit of a wild man. He's a little guy. He's uh, good good on the flat, you know, brave and a bit of a runaway cross country and good, sharp, careful jumper. You know, I would have loved to have competed him at this event last year, but unfortunately it wasn't to be. And uh, he had a great result there. He finished third in, in California at a four-star long at the end of last year. So um, he's in uh, sizzling form. I think uh, all three of them should do really, really well.
0: Oh, great. That's... Sick. Good to hear that uh, you're kicking on with all three of them, so to speak. And tell us a little about how Kentucky fits into your year and into the calendar. You just said, as we were chatting before we started recording, that you are back in Pennsylvania now, but you would have been in Carolina earlier in the season. And, you know, I know the US event riders move around a little bit. Tell us a little about sort of what you've been doing and where you've been the last couple of months as you move forward to that five star.
1: Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a pretty glamorous life here in America. Um, it's uh, basically the endless summer. Well, you know, November and December gets a bit chilly here, and then uh, we head down to... I, I base myself in, in South Carolina for January, February and March uh, at a farm called Stableview in, in Aiken, South Carolina, which is a, it's a small town that's uh, got event after event and show jumping shows and dresser shows. So that's about 12 hours south of where I live driving-wise um and then we can sort of zip down to Florida and compete and train down there and just to escape the winter and then uh, a couple of weeks ago we moved back to our farm here in Pennsylvania that uh Silver and I uh, own which uh, is is awesome to be at we've got everything you need with gallop tracks and rings and a really ideal place to get them fit for those last couple of weeks before Kentucky so you know, it's it's hard work, and it's a bit of a juggling act, shifting horses, and housing staff, and doing shows here, there, and everywhere. But I'm um, I'm glad to be back here in Pennsylvania. It's uh, I was sort of running out of clean clothes, and uh, got sick of two minute noodles there, just because I live by myself in a small apartment down there. And it's uh, good to be home with my wife and kids.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I know that Silver uh, has sort of stopped making that journey mm-hmm. with you, hasn't she? Since your uh, your sons yeah. Knox and Leo, yeah, yeah were sort of moved into school, school. yeah. Yeah. So as I was going to say, were you sort of living the bachelor lifestyle in South Carolina?
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm getting old though. I'm uh I'm enjoy- I enjoyed like going to bed early and not having kids screaming and waking up through the night. So uh, there were parts of it, uh, parts of it that were kind of nice, but it gets lonely after a while. And uh, I find that it's hard to, to keep up with all your washing and cooking and uh, all those little things you take for granted. So uh, I'm glad to be home. Excellent.
0: And what does your journey to Kentucky look like from uh, from Pennsylvania? How far away is that?
1: It's about a ten-hour drive. So we usually ship the horses to Kentucky on uh, Monday, and give them just a nice sort of day to freshen up, and Tuesday's sort of a bit of dressage, and then start getting stuck into them and priming them up for their for their performance. Uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, sort of thing. So. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's sort of the nervous weight at the moment where we, we just finished our last preparation event last weekend, which was in Tryon, which was a similar course to where the WEG was a couple of years ago. Uh, they all had a good run there. They all finished well, felt fit. So they look all pretty healthy uh, at the moment. So I'll probably stick two or three more gallops into them and a couple of jumps. And uh, and then basically all the hard work's done. It's more just a, a moment of... of really dialing in to see what you know how to give your best performance you know you can do all the training but the the key is to ride really really well when it counts in that in that moment which is you know a a short window of time you can you know be a champion at the lead up events or practice really good but unless you perform in that in that crucial moment it, it, it doesn't really count for anything.
0: Mm. And it'll be a busy week for you with three horses
1: at a five star. Is that something you've done before to have three rides at Kentucky? I've actually got four rides. I've got um, a younger horse called Luke One Forty in the four star short. So, yeah, I'm uh, I'm not sure if I'm being a, a legend or an idiot, one or the other, because uh, <laughs> it's going to be you know forty five minutes of cross country riding on Saturday, and that, the hard part's actually the you know preparing them all for the dressage and making sure that they're all settled and worked in properly and and you're focused on each one and understand they're all sort of got their own little thing you know that different warm-up and different aids for the flying changes and different styles of riding them cross-country so it's tricky i, I don't know if i'm doing the right thing or not but i'm just worried you know obviously originally i was going to split take a couple to badminton or Le Moulin, but i just don't get this fear i get the feeling that these events may or may not happen so I just thought, you know, all these horses are in form, uh, they're fit, they're getting a bit old, and uh, I should, you know, jump on this opportunity just because, like you said at the beginning, uh, America's figured out a way of running this five-star, and uh, there's not that many moments in your life where you, you, A, get to ride in a five-star, and B, have horses that could could do really well. So I'm going for it, but uh, I might regret it.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. When you've got the horses and the event is there, the climate, the way, the way things are at the moment, you've got to take those opportunities, even if it's going to be a super busy week. I admit I hadn't really even looked at the four-star short entries, so I hadn't clocked you had a horse in that class as well. But mm. uh, I'm sure you'll you'll be able to keep up with all of them and just give us a little bit of context around this year for you, Boyd. You will be aiming for Olympic selection and hoping to put in a good performance at Kentucky with that in mind, as well as the event itself as a, as a standalone competition.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm not really thinking about the Olympics. I've got to tell you, I wouldn't even know what month they're in. Um, you know, my, uh, my world, <laughs> I only sort of know what I'm doing up until Kentucky and, and then after that happens, well, Trot the horses up, trot me up and uh, make a game plan from there. You know, I think it's easy to get sort of focused too long away and really to compete at the Olympics, I have to go really well at Kentucky. So um, that's all I'm worried about. And uh, after that, I'm guessing the American team will will absolutely sort itself out on on that weekend. And then if I'm lucky enough to be uh, one of those guys, uh, I'll be raring to go.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just looking back at the times you've ridden at Kentucky, tell us about your very first ride there. Do you remember that?
1: I do. I do. I uh, flew over from Australia on a cargo plane with uh, Ying Yang Yo, and uh, got to Kentucky. He didn't know anyone. It was his first five star. But uh, it was cool you know, being there and just seeing all these riders and that you'd just watched on DVDs and followed in magazines. Uh, Andrew Hoy, Philip Dutton, Ralph Hill, just sort of being a little bit starstruck when you were there and I was just, uh, I loved it and right, right from that moment I knew deep down that I'd live in America for the rest of my life. I, I, I don't know why but um, I just uh, love the crowd, I love the American energy, they're just a great country and a beautiful event and uh, it was just one of those things where I, I just couldn't believe my eyes.
0: Yeah. And you were 11th at Kentucky that year on your on your debut with Ying Yang Yo, And it's sort of gone on from there. Do you have a favorite Kentucky memory? I mean, aside from finishing second, which is got to be a pretty special one and we've already talked about. But would you have a favorite Kentucky to look back on aside from that?
1: Favorite moment? I remember Ralph Hill. You guys know Ralph Hill is like he's a rock star American event rider. And uh, he hit on my girlfriend, Silver well well, didn't hit on her but I was making some, uh, some passes at her uh, and flirting with her and I remember riding around thinking wow that's awesome you know Ralph Hills making some comments to my wife and I thought wow this is incredible uh, but that <laughs> aside I mean I'm, I'm Kentucky's just been awesome I think uh, riding um, uh, horses for uh, Bruce Davidson around there was a big big event uh, for me just because I was young and new and uh, I remember getting knocked out in the head of the lake and nearly drowning. That was pretty. Well, oh, I can't remember it. It was pretty funny watching it <laughs> back on video now. And I don't know. I just I love being there. It's uh, the American crowds. They're the best crowds in the world. There, you go to England and you know you get like a little bit of a golf clap as you go. You know, riding past the palms and in America, it's uh, the crowds go wild. They're, even if you if even if you have a bad jump, they cheer and shout and yell and. Uh, uh, I uh, I love that about the country. So,
0: Yeah, and on that note, it's going to be quite different this year with the event Running Behind Closed Doors with No Spectators. How do you think that will be?
1: You know, the funny thing is, you know, you go back to my first one, I remember going around the cross country just being looking left and right at the crowds and it was hard to concentrate. And then as you get more experienced and older, you, you get this tunnel vision where you, you sort of block out everything outside the ropes or outside the the ring and uh, you don't actually notice it so in a way I'm looking forward to it I, I think uh, this will be uh, you know we'll have photos with masks on and and video of us going cross-country with no one watching and you know it's uh, I still think I'm going to be nervous as hell and uh, I still think that the, the winner it's going to be a, a moment in history that uh, whoever can win it um, will remember forever
0: yeah, it will be a unique Kentucky with no no crowds, as you say, different different look and, and different feel. But it's obvious talking to you what a big place that event holds sort of in, uh, in your view of the sport and for you as, an, as a rider living in America and representing the US. So it's great to talk to you, Boyd, and uh, get your enthusiasm for the event. And as I say, we will be following so closely from here in Britain and best of luck at Kentucky with all three of your horses. Fantastic. Thank
1: you, Pippa. Great to be on your show.
0: So I'm joined today by three of my horse and hound colleagues. So first of all, it's hello to our news editor, Eleanor Jones. How are you doing, Eleanor?
3: Yeah, all good except it's winter again and I'm not happy about how blooming freezing it is. <laughs>
0: but... <laughs> have, you, have you had snow?
3: Yes! And it didn't settle but it was falling and it was just like, no, 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 <laughs>
0: not now, go away. <laughs> yeah, I, I know how disgusted you are by snow and I can imagine snow in April was not going to make you a very happy person. No. Oh dear. <laughs> uh, we also have with us our senior news writer Lucy Elder. How are things going with you Lucy?
4: Yes, good here. Thank you, Pippa. The sun's out. Um, I've got a very fresh horse at the moment. There seems to be a combination of very chilly weather and spring grass, which is all quite exciting. And yes, obviously been watching quite a lot of racing this weekend.
0: So all good here. Yes, we will be coming on to the racing this weekend. And uh, on that note, we are joined today by our digital racing editor, Gemma Redrup, who is making her debut on the
5: Horse and Ham podcast. It's great to have you with us, Gemma. How are things with you? Oh, thanks, Fiffa. No, it's great to be here. Yep, all good at my end, thank you. Yeah, also suffering with a fresh horse as well, so I feel Lucy's pain there. <laughs> Oh, well, I had a lovely jump on uh, my
0: little horse on the weekend. We uh, built a grid and I do love jumping a grid because you can actually put quite a big fence at the end, can't you? But you know you're going to hit it in a good spot, so <laughs> you can just kind of sit up and keep coming down. And then uh, after I jumped down the grid, uh, we had a bit of a, uh, a dog leg fence across the school and I jumped from that round to the ox that was at the end of the grid and he did it beautifully the first time. So I was like, right, I'm just going to leave it there. I'm not pushing my luck. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I do. I had a lesson
3: at the weekend and my trainer put up some fiendish lines and I looked at him was like I know what you're doing there, and then she actually did them perfectly so I was like that'll do stop now (laughs) (laughs) leave
0: it while the going is good I'm sure that's not what the professionals recommend they'd be like no (laughs) consolidate your learning but sometimes you know you've got to stop while you're ahead haven't you Well, we are going to come on to talking about the racing as Lucy touched on, and I think most of you will have guessed why I asked Gemma to join us on today's podcast. We are going to talk about the phenomenal Rachel Blackmore and her win in the Grand National last Saturday. And I think everybody knows the headlines, you would have to be living under a rock not to have picked up that she is the first female jockey to win the race. Gemma, can you sort of put this in context for us? How old is the Grand National and what is the sort of history of women riding in it?
5: Yeah, so the Grand National, it's a very old traditional race. It was first run in 1839, but it wasn't until 1977 that the first woman actually rode in the race, and that was Charlotte Brew. And sort of on from there, Geraldine Reese was the first woman to complete the race, but that wasn't until 1982. So five years after the first woman rode in the Grand National. And prior to Rachel winning at the weekend, Katie Walsh had been the highest placed female jockey to finish. And and that was on Seabass in 2012. And she finished third. So it's been a long time coming, but not for the want of trying, I don't think. Yeah, and I remember reading National Velvet when I was a kid. And I remember Mm. watching
0: Katie ride in that race and and finish third and sort of cheering cheering for the girls back then. Tell us a bit more about Rachel herself. How old is she? Where's she from? How has she sort of come to this point in her career?
5: yeah so rachel she's 31 um and she's actually not from a very horsey background at all she's uh, her mum's a teacher and her dad's a dairy farmer and she grew up in county tipperary uh she did sort of pony club stuff and some pony racing too and and she completed a degree in equine science at the University of Limerick while she was also riding out and competing as an amateur. So she's she, she's, she's been a busy girl, I think, most of her life. But um, she rode her first winner under rules as an amateur in 2011, but actually only turned pro six years ago. So she's not been pro for a, a very long time, uh, but has obviously achieved a lot in that short space of time. Basically, she's just worked really hard and has a phenomenal amount of talent to to have got to where she is now.
0: And I know that she was very successful at the Cheltenham Festival earlier this year as well and really started to, to hit the headlines sort of beyond the racing press then, didn't she?
5: Yeah, so she she was also won the champion hurdle at the festival this year and was leading jockey there and um, obviously all of the winners are are trained by Henry de Bromhead, so he's obviously something of a genius too, but she's also, we mustn't forget, she's actually got a real life chance at becoming the Irish champion national hunt jockey this season too and I mean, she's just had an amazing year and it's just a huge achievement, uh, male or female, so yeah. Gemma, can you just sort of describe the
0: race for us? How did things pan out on the day with Rachel's ride on Manila Times?
5: Well, if you watch Rachel in all of her races, not just the Grand National, she's tactically unbelievable. She's just brilliant. And she always seems to be in the right place at the right time. And on Saturday, I mean, that was no exception. She was was always on or near to the rails. So basically going the shortest possible way round and sort of sat in the top 10 throughout the race. She seemed to get Manila times into a lovely rhythm and he just seemed to pop round, um, which obviously they're very big fences, but yeah, that's how it looked. He just popped round and he sort of traveled sweetly throughout and, and Rachel took it up at the second last fence and ultimately went on to win by six and a half lengths. And actually it was quite interesting. She said after the race that she'd, wa- she'd asked, um, Ruby and Katie Walsh about riding round the grand national and they, apparently they often they sort of talk about having a semicircle of space in front of you riding through the race so basically keeping out of trouble while still putting your horse into contention and she seems to sort of have that everywhere so she she basically nailed it <laughs>
0: Yeah, amazing work. Eleanor, I think you had some money on Rachel. How did you feel watching the race?
5: Oh, I love the
3: Grand National. It was one of those ones that we always um, watched as a family, massively non-horsey family, and we always all had a pound on when I was a kid, but oh, it was fantastic. I was only brave enough to put three pounds on, but I think even if I hadn't backed her, I'd have been shouting as much as I did with the dog bouncing about, like, what are you shouting at? (laughs) But, oh, it was fantastic.
0: And Lucy, some excitement at your end too, I imagine?
4: Oh, absolutely! It was it was brilliant to watch, and when she hit the elbow with that increasing lead, I was I was screaming at the television, um. So sort of, and it was just yeah, watching her come home in front was was amazing, and in so many ways. I mean, what a jockey! What a training performance from Henry de Promhead, as as Gemma just said there as well, um, to have have a one-two, and for for John Nallen who bought um. Manila Times and Manila Indo who won the Gold Cup as foals and produced them through their you know first point to points and things. Um, It was a huge milestone in 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 many ways actually and it's it made me think a lot this week as I think possibly with many people about sort of importance of role models and heroes and and how we celebrate those milestones as athletes. And it's really interesting, Lucy, that when you look at our Olympic disciplines, it's actually
0: not a big deal at all when women win things because we are an equal opportunity sport and have mm. been for such a long time that um, racing is a bit different. And it's amazing
4: to see that changing. Absolutely. And I think that's really, really important on, on a lot of levels. And I've been trying to sort of clarify my thoughts around all of this fairly recently and the way we talk about jockeys and and women in the sport. I mean, Rachel Blackmore, she is a top jockey. She's not a good woman jockey. I mean, she is a good woman jockey, but she's not a good jockey for a woman. She is a phenomenal jockey. And she's a woman. And as you just said there with the with the other Olympic disciplines, it's not a headline in its own right to say, you know, woman wins badminton or woman wins the Olympic medal. It's a phenomenal story and achievement in their own right as a rider, as an athlete, and what they've achieved. And it's also it is an achievement as well, uh, for women in sports. So I think it's it's really interesting to to see both the significance of, of those things and to celebrate them as well for what they are. And I think it's a phenomenal achievement in in a lot of ways uh, as an athlete for smashing those glass ceilings, for the training performance, for for a lot of things. And I think those are all rightly being celebrated this week.
0: I think for us as women, it's sort of that that point is that you it's amazing to see the glass ceilings being smashed and to celebrate that and almost what we want is for it to become normal so that it's not the talking point so that uh, actually we just see Rachel as a jockey alongside other jockeys and while we celebrate these milestones almost the aim of the game is to get to the point where it's not
4: a talking point is that what you're saying Lucy? I think it is and while also still recognizing the importance of role models and heroes within that and it's got me thinking a lot about what the attributes and what the qualities are for, for role models and when you're little and how gender plays into it. I think Lizzie Kelly said it very well this week. Obviously, she's a record breaker and has a phenomenal career in her own right too. And she summed it up that when she was little, she was pretending to be AP McCoy and now little girls can pretend to be Rachel Blackmore. And while obviously I'm not a rider and certainly not a professional rider by any means, when I was little on my pony, I was, I had you know the likes of, William Fox Pitt and the Whitakers are my heroes. They still are my heroes, but I was pretending to be Pippa Funnel. And I think it's comes, a lot of it for role models is quite personal, but it's about being able to see yourself in that place and helping ignite those dreams as well. But yeah, it's a lot to celebrate this week, definitely.
0: Mm. And Gemma, just to bring you back in there. I know that you have ridden out race horses and you rode in a charity race. Did you have sort of ambitions in, in racing when you were younger? And, and did you have role models in, in the sport who were male or, or, or were there female
5: jockeys then for you to look up to? I, f- I would say probably not, um, in, in terms of, jo- in terms of jockeys and, and racing, um, there wouldn't be, but actually it's, it was. There was a great quote that Rachel said after the race where she said, I don't feel male. I don't feel female. I I actually don't even feel human. And I know she's somebody that would rather not have the whole female male jockey conversation. Uh, she'd rather it not be a thing, but at the same time, I know I've heard interviews with her since where she's, she's, she's like, Oh, I, I am Rachel Blackmore. And she has recognized that she is a role model now to, to girls growing up and, and, and the importance of that. So, it's it's it is a big thing, but also it needs to not be a thing anymore if that if that makes sense I think
0: yeah, absolutely it's just what I was trying to say earlier that uh, it's a milestone now and something we're talking about, and in five years' time, we probably won't need to talk about it because it'd just be the norm. Thank you, Gemma. It's brilliant to have you with us today to hear all about Rachel and her fantastic achievement. Well, last week was such a big one for news. And of course, Friday's announcement was a somber one when the nation heard that his Royal Highness, Prince Philip Duke of Edinburgh had died at the age of 99. And he was of course, a huge friend of the horse world and someone who contributed so much, Eleanor, can you give us a brief overview of some of the areas of equestrianism that he touched during his long life?
3: Yeah, I mean, he had a a huge influence on equestrianism in this country um, and abroad. He was president of the FEI for 22 years um, and and represented Britain in in combined driving, which is a sport he essentially helped shape. Um, He also played polo to a a high level. He was one of the top eight British polo players in the 1960s. Um, And, of course, also, if it hadn't been for him, mounted games wouldn't be what it was because he created the, the Prince Philip Cup. The ultimate for for young Mounted Games riders, which as we know runs at the Horse of the Year show. And he was just passionate about children's ability to be able to get into horse sport without having to have an expensive pony. So yeah, and the FEI has paid tribute to him as well and and he he was born in the year the FEI was founded. And um, yeah, I think he'll be remembered as a brilliant ambassador of horse sport.
0: Mm, A long, long, long and full life. Can you give us a flavour of some of the tributes that have been coming in for him from around the horse world? As I know you've spoke to some people for this week's magazine about him.
3: Yeah, obviously the Pony Club, as we've just said, has said you know what a legacy his, he has left at the Pony Club, and, and that they, as an organisation, will try to uphold those values. Um, we've had British Equestrian Chairman uh, Malcolm Wharton saying what a remarkable servant he was to this country, and and how clear his love and passion for the horse was. And uh, there was one lovely quote that we've reported from Prince Philip, who who once said some optimists tend to assume that once you've learnt the lesson that horses bite at one end and kick at the other there's nothing very t- further to worry about no such luck i'm afraid that's only lesson one in a learning process that goes on as long as you're mug enough to continue to associate with horses
4: <laughs> well
0: that's definitely a sentiment that we can all feel an affinity to when we uh, continue to, ha- to have anything to do with horses thank you eleanor for giving us that very brief look at the duke of edinburgh's life we do have a six page tribute to him in horse and hound this week so make sure you pick up the magazine for that Lucy, coming back to you now on a different topic, although it is racing related, but you've been tuning into the 2021 International Forum for the Aftercare of Racehorses, a virtual forum as everything is at the moment, but what were the key points discussed there?
4: So this is the first of of several parts of this which is all happening virtually this year of course with the coronavirus pandemic but the first one was was fascinating and I can't recommend them enough to be honest. It was chaired by Nick Luck and um, the guests for that included Yogi Breisner of course we know who's Influence in the eventing world has been phenomenal uh, over the last how many years, and um, Jessica Harrington as well, now known for her huge achievements in training racehorses under both codes, but of course she was an Irish eventing Olympian herself. And one of the big themes in the first one was the crossover actually between racing and equestrian sports. So if we leave racing behind slightly now, this is taking horses at the time when they're coming out of coming out of training and looking towards their the second part of their, or the next part of their life uh, after that. And having a look at the horsemanship side, how we view horses, uh, where education would be, you know, is needed. Um, and how horses, how versatile they are really, and how they can do everything, and also our whole moral responsibility towards ensuring that horses have um have a have a long and happy life and and careers careers after racing if if, if and when they can mm. and you
0: mentioned Jessica Harrington there being one of the speakers. Give us a bit more of an insight into uh, into what she said.
4: So she was explaining how her father's attitude of horses can do everything, sort of shaped her own attitudes when it comes to horses. So she was talking about one of her top eventers, the 15-2 Amoy, who I believe was third at badminton um, and had a bit of rotation really between hunting, point to pointing, eventing, racing during her career until she focused on eventing. And she was talking, I thought it was really interesting actually how she was talking about the education of owners coming into racing Uh, often you know perhaps some owners won't have a horsey background so it is really important that at that stage when owners are coming in that they are made aware of their responsibility for that animal not just during the few years they might enjoy them running in races but that they have a responsibility that that animal has a life afterwards as well and that they should expect to contribute something financially towards that at least at very least to get them going into their new lives um and she was likening it almost to having a a puppy for life messages with that go with dog ownership when owners come into the sport and the right time to have those conversations you know at the beginning um so that when you know later down the line when the horse comes out of training it's not you know a surprise or a shock or you know when things perhaps haven't gone as well as you'd like that in, in his racing career that you're then saying oh and by the way you know we need to think about what happens next so I thought that was very interesting about you know timing and and also what she does with her own horses and the importance that she has on horses moving well and in walk trot and canter and that horsemanship side of things and preparation for their for their life after racing as well. Mm. And you mentioned
0: Yogi Breisner was also one of the speakers, obviously top eventing coach, eventing guru, but he's also been very involved in, in racehorses and racehorse training for a long time. Tell us what, um, what Yogi was talking about.
4: Well, one of the Many really interesting things that he suggested in, in, in the conference was that education centers and racing schools could be well-placed to offer courses teaching people how to train and prepare horses for their new careers after racing, uh, which I thought was a really interesting idea. He also sort of stressed the idea of having more collaboration between both sides of that horse world from racing and also the other parts, uh, the wider equestrian world, because there's so, much, there's so much knowledge and expertise in both those worlds if you can pull those more together, then uh, that can only be a good thing for a horse. One of the really lovely quotes that he came out with that he said there are very very few horses that are born, never mind X-ray horses that are capable of reaching, you know, Olympic or world championship level. But there's a niche, I'd say, for 99.9% of all horses born in the world. So it was very much again a focus on. Celebrating these wonderful animals, wonderful thoroughbreds, all the things that they can do and, and how, how we as, a, as, a, as an industry, the racing industry and the equestrian industry can help make that transition even, even better. So even more can go on and enjoy wonderful lives and make people very happy as, as we know they do already.
0: Mm, I love that idea of people being able to get training in how to retrain a racehorse Mm. because it's not something that I would feel confident doing. Although I've been riding all my life, I think I would feel quite daunted Mm -hmm. um, in taking on an ex-racehorse. And uh, I don't know whether that would be for sort of professional trainers or amateurs or or how it would work, but I think it's definitely something that's worth exploring. Thank you so much, Lucy. And thank you to Eleanor and Gemma for joining us today too. So now it's time for some vet insight. Over to Rick Farr.
2: Hi, my name's Rick. I'm a First Opinion practitioner at a practice called Farr and Percy Equine in Hertfordshire. And um, this time you're going to be getting a a bit of a a hint what happens on the referral side of a veterinary practice. So when I see your horse out in the field, be it for an injury or a wound or a colic or something like that, sometimes we have to refer them on to um, to centres and other hospitals. So we're lucky enough to have Andy Fitzjackson from the Royal Veterinary College on the line as well, and he's going to give himself a bit of an intro in a moment. But um, it just gives us and gives you that opportunity to see what's happening with your horse from start to finish and all those unanswered questions that you probably think, well, wow, where's my horse going? What's going to go on in the referral centre itself? So I'll pass quickly over to Andy and then we'll run through the whole referral centre or the referral process from start to finish and bring
6: you all up to speed. So Andy, uh, are you there? I am. Thank you, Rick, very much indeed. And thanks for the invitation. Um, yeah, so I work at the uh, Royal Veterinary College Equine Referral Centre. So I'm one of the surgeons, and that, what that means, I've done some uh, further qualifications to uh, specialise in equine surgery, and that includes lameness. And at the Royal Vet College, we have specialists in all sorts of different areas. We have obviously surgery, and we have internal medicine, which will be most of the other things you think about uh, with your horse, that uh, doesn't necessarily involve surgery. We have um, ophthalmologists, neurologists, anesthesia specialists, and so forth. And that's the kind of thing you'll expect at uh, the majority of uh, referral centers in the UK. And we receive cases um, from practices, including RICS, that come to us, including that we've got our own practice as well. Um, So we receive receive a combination of, of, of cases and um, they spend some time with us um, usually more than just a day on the whole Uh, and we've got lots of specialist imaging modalities as well which um, referring vets can utilize more on a a, uh, sort of imaging only basis but I'm back to Rick and we'll go through the process.
2: Right so I'm a first opinion practitioner so nine times out of ten if you own a horse chances are that you've probably called up your Your local uh, practice—they've come out, and you have that dreaded suspicion that you might have to go off to a hospital. So, from our point of view, when we arrive, obviously we're going to assess the patient and decide what needs to be done. But I think there's a few things that benefit us on the veterinary side, which helps the whole system just go with a little bit more ease. Again, from first opinion practitioners' points of view, we like to be speaking to the actual owner of the animal, and I think it's really important. And that from the prospect of actually giving permission to go to a hospital or actually go further on with any further investigation, that we do have the owner's permission for that. So if you have yard agreements that encompass this, that's a really good idea. So on the first opinion side, I will probably go through and say, this is what's going to happen at the referral centre, whether you're going to go for surgery. These are the likely cost implications and the likely stats actually for that patient as well. Um, I think it's important that owners also have the prior knowledge whether they actually going to want to commit to things such as surgery. Um, Obviously, the referral centre will bring you up to speed with regards to the suitability for surgery and whether a patient is actually going to to require that. But I think clients need to have it right in their own head if they want to go down that route or not. Also, from our point of view... um, the amount of times we arrive on a yard, say 9, 10 o'clock at night, you're looking at a colic. Um, people look at you for a little bit more support with regards to how they're actually going to get to a referral centre. Uh, having transport on the yard or actually knowing where your local transport is is absolutely imperative in this, in this kind of scenario. So having that set up even before you call us out is a good idea. We'll be able to give you directions to the referral centre as well. And many of your local veterinary practices will have a good relationship with their local referral centre and be able to inform you of A, who's going to be on or who's going to be meeting you there and the quickest and best way to actually get there as well. Um, a large part of the whole process is usually, unfortunately, financially based. So we do advise people that if they do have any insurance or anything like that, that they do either try to contact their insurance company at the earliest convenience or whether they do have some form of deposit or credit card with them. Because, again, there are a lot of additional loops and sort of financial constraints to the referral process itself, which just need to be covered. And. Um, and I don't know whether Andy has any input on this. Sometimes we feel that referral sometimes isn't actually necessary for some patients, i.e. with some colics, with particularly elderly patients, whether actually you are going to consider doing uh, in-field palliative care or even consider euthanasia. So although no one likes approaching the subject of euthanasia, I think it's a good uh, thing to have in your mind as an owner of what you would actually do when you call that vet out at 10 o'clock at night. Um. Once we've done the actual referral and decided that you're going to go for the referral itself, we'll call the referral centre up. So at this point, I think it's ideal to bring Andy in to kind of say what happens when you actually arrive and the whole process of what actually happens under their hospital roof. And then right the way through to when they come back to us in first opinion practice as they're a kind of discharging kind of scenario.
6: Yeah. So I think if we're assuming this is more of an emergency referral, because there's obviously two... Types on that front. We've got the emergency, colic, or wound, or whatever it might be, uh, versus the elective referral, which has been planned and will take place um, down the road. Now, when when if you arrive with an emergency, um, we of course completely, you know, uh, acknowledge that uh, it's very stressful. It's stressful for all. It's stressful for the owner. Um, it's stressful for the patient. And and of course, you know, we're all there wanting to get things done as slickly and effectively as possible to, to, to you know, reduce the, the, the time frame and therefore the suffering of your horse. Now, when you arrive, of course, though, as Rick has already alluded to, there's things we simply have to get on board and, and it'll start having a whole load of parameters and in, investigations taking place. These are not inv- invasive investigations, these are just collecting parameters and scanning and things like that, which are going to help us build the picture of what needs to be done. In the meantime, of course, we need to get some details. And we have different forms that uh, do need to be filled in. And we recognize people are often under stress in this situation, but we do need consent. We do need informed consent. There's no way we can proceed with anything invasive until we have uh, informed uh, consent. And that means laying down an estimate of the cost and also the risk of complications um, as well. So we'll need consent we'll get a little bit of history but we would have got a lot of that already in the emergency situation from your vet so from rick and also we'll we'll get another form signed which are our terms of business and feed information of course they aren't so relevant necessarily in the in the emergency situation but of course ongoing we do need those uh to be signed and rick mentioned the finances it is an awful thing to have to to talk about in an emergency situation But nevertheless we like anyone else are you know have to make ends meet in terms of business Um, and we can't have you know huge bills outstanding otherwise we simply would would fold if you're insured of course that makes it uh, more easy um, a decision to make uh, takes finances out of some of the more difficult decisions that um, may uh, come about so once we've um, one person will be going through those forms with you and then the team will also be investigating how best to proceed. And then, of course, we'll come along and and say, right, okay, this is what we found and this is what we recommend. And that obviously will depend on the individual uh, situation. And then, of course, hopefully things go well and the horse uh, will uh, go into recovery and um, the process of getting over the surgery, whatever that will have been, uh, will proceed. And we'll uh, then uh, communicate with you daily or twice daily, on how things are progressing, and in the in the course during the course of the stay, we will have communicated with Rick how things have gone um, and uh, what kind of post discharge care your horse will need going home.
2: I, I can even add to that on the basis that the, the communication whilst your horse is in the hospital is almost invaluable because there are periods of times when owners feel almost. Uh, they can't ask questions so it's really nice from a first opinion point of view to constantly have that updated stream from the referral center so if you do have questions you can always ask the referral center not a problem but you can also ask the first opinion side and that that's the the nice thing that you get with a relationship between a referral center and first opinion practice to make sure that that patient has the best care as well but also that the client is informed and that it works really well with ourselves in the RVC, So I think that that's really important to have.
6: Yeah, yeah, that is absolutely invaluable. And you must feel you can, you know, you can contact your vet or, or us again, of course, if you if there's anything that we said that you don't quite understand. But um, that's imperative. Communication is absolutely key.
2: Well, I mean, I think that pretty much covers the referral process. And it. It obviously changed slightly for elective referrals. But I think most people are kind of worried about what happens with that colic, what happens with that joint penetration all in the middle of the night. So I think preparation is definitely the key. So, uh, Andy, thank you very much for joining us. Um, I know I speak to you a fair bit and that with regards to um, patients and all sorts. And it's invaluable, again, to to have referral centres like your own uh, on our side as well. So thank you. And then um, hopefully we're going to speak to you in another couple of podcasts.
6: Wonderful. Thanks, Rick. It's a pleasure.
2: Thank you very much, indeed. Thank you
0: to you both. Rick and Andy will be back with us next week to explain what happens when your horse has a CT scan. We'll be talking to Annalee Drummond-Hay, who won the very first Burley back in 1961. She went on to win badminton the following year and then jumped to the very top level, all with the incredible Merely a Monarch. I am really looking forward to hearing that interview. And of course, we'll also dissect the week's news as normal. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not leave us a review on your podcast platform? We'd love to hear what you think. I hope everyone has a good week. Talk to you next time. See you then. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.